Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 97 of the show. It is an absolutely loaded episode for you this week. We did not have an episode last week, so this is basically two weeks worth of stuff that we got to get into. Plenty to discuss. We've crowned a World Series champion, so we'll get into that. Uh, College football and the NFL, absolutely a ton of info to get into there. And the standings updates in the NHL and the NBA look quite a bit different than they did a couple weeks ago. And then, of course, the Around the Island segment, you know, certainly a lot of information there. We are going to start off, though, on the PGA Tour, and we'll take it back two weeks ago. That tournament was the Butterfield Bermuda Championship, and that was at the Port Royal Golf Course in Southampton, Bermuda. It was a par 71 distance was 6,828 yards. Now, on the last episode, I did not preview this tournament. I just spoke of it and basically told you that there were no recognizable names that were going to be out there, at least for the casual golf fan. So I did not do any kind of big preview on this. Not going to spend a lot of time on it. Turned out to be a pretty competitive tournament. Uh, The winner was Seamus Power with a score of 19 under par. Uh, He ended up shooting three consecutive rounds of six under 65 to open uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then closed with a one under on Sunday, which was good enough for 19 under. Thomas Dietrich at 18 under was solo second, uh, and then three-way tie for third between Patrick Rogers, Kevin New, and Ben Griffith. Now, interesting note about Seamus Powers' victory He, of course, is from Ireland, and the winner the week prior at the CJ Cup in South Carolina was Rory McIlroy, who's from Northern Ireland. So this was, oddly enough, the very first time in the PGA Tour's history that two Irishmen have won back-to-back tournaments. So uh, I just thought that was very interesting, considering how many good golfers we have from Ireland. Uh, That's the first time that two Irishmen have won back-to-back events. So we'll... Uh, fast forward it from that over to this past weekend's tournament, which was the Worldwide Technology Championship at Mayakoba. All right, and this tournament uh, was held at the El Camaleon Golf Course at Mayakoba, which was in Quintana Roo, Mexico. Now, the course, this course, obviously, it's in a beautiful location. Quintana Roo, Mexico is where like Cancun and Cozumel are. So, if you've been to either of those places, you know it's very tropical, like rainforesty. Uh, so the weather was terrific, very warm, humid. And if you watched it on TV, the course was in spectacular shape. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of trees, a lot of rainforest type stuff, a lot of water, obviously too, being being uh, on the ocean. So there was quite a bit to deal with on this course. The El Camaleon Golf Course is a par seventy-one. Distance was seven thousand and thirty-four yards. 
Now, unlike the Butterfield Bermuda Championship the week prior, this field at the Worldwide Technology Championship was absolutely loaded. A ton of big-name players, you know, Scotty Scheffler, Victor Hovland, Colin Morikawa, um, Tony Finau, just a just a lot of names that you would recognize. Billy Horschel, you know there there was some big names that missed the cut too. But uh, all in all, this thing was definitely worth watching just based on you know the number of of big name players. Now I will say a couple of notes about this. The first one is that every winning score at this tournament since 2013 had been at least 20 under par or better. All right, so. Uh, we looked for that to continue, and it did. We'll get into that in a second. But uh, the second storyline was that Victor Hovland had won this event two years uh, prior, so he was looking for a three-peat at this course, all right, which there has not been a, re- a three-peat winner on the PGA Tour since 2009 to 2011, Okay, so it had been a while since we'd seen one person win three straight years at the same course. Hovland was looking to do that. This tournament, uh, when it was all said and done, your winner was Russell Henley with a score of 23 under par. So he continued that trend uh, since 2013. Every winning score has been at least 23, uh, at least 20 under par. And Russell Henley's 23 under par uh, actually was. Uh, tied for the tournament record in this thing. So that was Henley's fourth career victory on tour, and it was his first one since 2017. So it's been a while since he won, and he won in very good fashion. He actually opened up uh, his first two rounds with back-to-back eight-under rounds of 63, then had a six-under round of 65, and then a one-under round of 70 to close. He had a four-shot victory over Brian Harmon, who was at 19 under par. He opened his first two rounds with a five-under round of 66 on both days. Actually had a hole-in-one, I believe it was Friday. Then he had a four-under 67 in round three, and then another five-under 66 in round four. There was a four-way tie for third place at 18 under par, which was five shots back of Henley. And that was Scotty Scheffler, Joel Damon, Troy Merritt, and Seamus Power. Okay, you recognize that. Power played well in back-to-back weeks. It actually looked like he was uh, in contention to win this thing, Power. Uh, he shot a 8-under 63 in round three, which really kind of catapulted him up there, but then only shot 3-under on Sunday, and he was quite a, quite a ways back. Scotty Scheffler... Uh, he opened with a six under 65, shot even par on Friday, three under on uh, Saturday, and then a lights out uh, nine under round of 62 on Sunday, which was the low round of the tournament. So uh, terrific round on Sunday for Scheffler. If Scheffler would have won that tournament, he would have captured, uh, recaptured the number one ranking in the official world golf rankings. So Rory had done that and passed Scheffler with his win a few weeks ago at the CJ Cup. Scheffler could have gotten it back uh, with a win, but instead he finishes T3 at 18 under. Victor Hovland, I mentioned him, he was tied for 10th at 16 under par. He actually looked pretty good after the first round. He shot a 6 under 65, looked like he was going to be in contention 
but his uh, his rounds on Friday and Sunday weren't that great, so kind of fell off the map. Colin Morikawa was also out there. He was at 15 under. So, again, you see some big names. Made it uh, a little more interesting, at least just on the on the f- you know face value of this tournament with the, the people that were in it in comparison to the Butterfield Bermuda Championship. But um, that one ended up being a little more competitive. Russell Henley pretty much had this thing in the bag after his first two rounds, uh, although it did get a tad bit interesting. So that was that tournament. Russell Henley was your winner there, which brings us now to this weekend's tournament, which is the Cadence Bank Houston Open. All right, that's at the Memorial Park Golf Course in Houston, Texas, par 70, distance 7,412 yards. Okay, this is a municipal golf course. It's been around for over 100 years. It was used on the PGA Tour way back then took about a 60-year break from the PGA Tour's schedule, uh, and since then have recently uh, underwent a lot of renovations on this course. They lengthened some holes, shortened some holes, removed some trees, all right, but the course itself is pretty challenging, right? It's a par 70, right, so you only have two par fives. Uh, there's a lot of short grass runoffs, which obviously can be problematic, a lot of strategic bunkers, uh, you know, usually seem to uh, catch quite a few shots. And then the greens are uniquely contoured for this thing. So factor all that in with the par 70. And uh, I don't think we're going to see a score at 23 under par like we saw this past week. But uh, I certainly think, um, you know, that we could see a, a fairly low score. The field itself, pretty decent. Uh, not uh, Probably not as good as last week. Uh, in Mexico, but certainly better than it was in Bermuda a couple weeks ago. Several top-ranked players in the world. Texas native Scotty Scheffler, he's going to be out there. And with a win in this thing, just like last week, with a win here at the Cadence Bank Houston Open, Scotty Scheffler can overtake Rory for world number one. So a little bit on the line there for him. He is currently sitting number two in the official world golf rankings. Uh, Hideki Matsuyama, Sam Burns, Tony Finau, Justin Rose, Gary Woodland, Jason Day. A lot of recognizable names going to be out there. And again, last week's winner, Russell Henley, he will be out there as well here in Houston. He actually won this event in Houston back in 2017, which was the last year that he won on tour. So uh, certainly a good tournament this week. You know, football is, is being more competitive than ever. And you know, without the World Series on, I'll probably catch a little bit of this tournament, but most of my attention this weekend will be uh, on football, just as it as it has been the last eight nine weeks. So, uh, but like I said, good field, uh, pretty solid, challenging course, long course, seventy four hundred yards. So, uh, all in all, it should be a good tournament, and uh, we will check back in next week and see how it turned out. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball, and uh, we will recap the World Series. That has officially concluded, and we have crowned a world champion in Major League Baseball. Before we do the recap, we had previewed the World Series on the last episode, which again was a couple of weeks ago. World Series featured the American League champion Houston Astros against the National League champion Philadelphia Phillies. Now, Interestingly enough about this matchup was that the Houston Astros were the top overall seed in the American League. 
and the Philadelphia Phillies were the bottom overall seed in the National League. So a little bit of a mismatch there on paper. Uh, Houston came into this thing having won all seven of their preseason games, all right? They had not lost in the uh, postseason, rather. Had not lost in the postseason. This was their fourth World Series appearance in the last six seasons, which was just incredible. For Philadelphia, this was their first World Series appearance since 2009. Now, I did mention this fact, but I'll remind you that these two teams played the final regular season series against each other in Houston. All right, Houston had won two of those three games. And since Houston had not lost in the playoffs up to the World Series, Philadelphia was the last team to beat Houston right in the regular season there. And then since Philadelphia made it that far to the World Series, Houston was the last team to beat Philadelphia in a series, right? Because Houston had beat them in the, re- la- the last regular season series, and Philly had won all three of their playoff series so far. So interesting uh, note there. So uh, I predicted that Houston would win in six games, and um, that is exactly what happened. But how did we get there? So game one, Houston Astros started Justin Verlander on the mound, which made Verlander uh, the only pitcher since Roger Clemens. Him and Roger Clemens are the only two pitchers in Major League Baseball history to start a World Series game in three different decades, which is very impressive. Now, this thing early was all Astros. They got up 5-0. Philly ended up coming back and winning 6-5. Verlander gave up five of those runs. That comeback for Philly was the largest World Series comeback since 2002 when the Los Angeles Angels trailed the San Francisco Giants 5-0 and came back to win by that same 6-5 score. Now, note on that. The only reason I mention that is because the manager of the San Francisco Giants at the time that they blew that five-run lead was Dusty Baker, who just so happens to be the Houston Astros manager who gave up that five-run lead. So... Dusty Baker was the manager responsible for blowing the two largest uh, World Series deficits in recent history. Now, this dropped Houston, uh, their all-time World Series Game 1 record to 0-5. So uh, all five World Series that Houston's been a part of, they've lost Game 1. So uh, if they make it next year, you can go ahead and pencil in a Game 1 loss. It also made Justin Verlander's World Series ERA the absolute worst World Series ERA in Major League Baseball history with a 6.07. That was a minimum of 30 innings pitch. Now, he did redeem himself later on in the series, but nonetheless, Philly won game one in Houston. Game two, kind of a similar script. Astros jumped out all over Philly, got another 5 nothing lead, and you're thinking, okay, well, hell, here comes Philly. Philly got a couple of them back, made it 5-2, to two, and uh, Astros' bullpen sealed the deal on that to prevent anything else from happening. So Houston won Game 2, 5-2. to two. Now in that Game 2, the Astros became the first team in World Series history to start a game with three extra base hits in a row. So they literally jumped all over the Phillies. So series was evened up going back to Philly for Games 3, 4, and 5. Game three was actually supposed to be played uh, last Monday night, but due to the rain, it was postponed to Tuesday. Philly came out swinging in this one to the tune of five home runs. Uh, pitching was great. Ended up shutting out Houston 7 nothing. 
Uh, I think Houston left their bats back home. So Phillies won the game 7-0, took a 2-1 series lead. Houston pitcher Lance McCullers, he became the first pitcher in Major League Baseball history to give up five home runs in a single World Series game. Not the stat you want, but uh, such is the case. And so Philly was up two games to one. And then this is where Houston just put their foot down. Game four, it was the exact opposite, uh, right? Phillies in game three hit five home runs. Uh, Game four, it was all Houston. Houston was just locked in the whole night. Astros pitchers actually combined for a no-hitter. So Christian Javier was the starting pitcher. He went six innings, struck out nine. And then the bullpen took over, did not give up a hit over the final three innings. So the Astros no-hit the Phillies in game four to win five to nothing, even the series at two games apiece. That was actually the first ever combined no-hitter in uh, MLB postseason history. So pretty cool stuff there for Houston. Game five was in Philly, obviously a a tight game. Um, Winner gets the the one-game advantage with a chance to close out. It was a back-and-forth game. They traded runs in the first and the eighth inning, uh, but Houston was able to get that extra run, come out on top. Justin Verlander got the win in this one. He pitched pretty well. Uh, That was his first-ever World Series victory as a pitcher. So the Astros won game five to take a 3-2 series lead back home. Game six, Phillies actually got up one nothing, but uh, the Astros answered pretty quick when Jordan Alvarez hit a massive three-run home run that is probably still in orbit somewhere, and uh, that put them up 3-1. They got an insurance run to make it 4-1, and then that Astros bullpen took over rest of the way. Astros won game six, 4-1 to win the World Series in six games. Uh, Houston Astros rookie shortstop Jeremy Pena, he was named your World Series MVP. He had two home runs there in that World Series. He actually was the third rookie ever to win the World Series MVP award and the first rookie position player to win it. And if you recall, in the ALCS, he was also the ALCS MVP. So pretty impressive postseason for the young shortstop there, Jeremy Pena. He also won a Gold Glove Award this past week, which I'll go over later and around the island. So a huge week for Jeremy Pena. I don't know where he's at in his contract with the Astros, but I would expect the Astros to uh, probably shell out some decent cash for that kid. Um, on the flip side of things, the Philadelphia Phillies, big reason Philadelphia lost uh, was because their bats just completely failed. With the exception of game three where they hit five home runs the Phillies just did not hit all right in fact the Phillies set an all-time record for strikeouts in the World Series with 71 previous record was 70 set by the 2020 Tampa Bay Rays and 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks well the Philadelphia Phillies of 2022 beat that with 71 strikeouts so that tells you that the Astros pitching was absolutely exceptional which it was, the bullpen specifically. In fact, during the entire postseason, that would be three series for the Astros, their bullpen ERA was .83, which is the lowest bullpen ERA ever in a single postseason with a minimum of 35 innings pitched. So Ryan Presley on that back end, Brian Abreu, those guys just locked it down. And if if Houston had a, a 
one or two run lead, three run lead late in the game. It was all but over. And uh, for Houston, this is their second World Series title as a franchise. The first one came a few years ago. Of course, that one had the asterisk with the cheating scandal. This one is completely asterisk free. All right. There was no cheating. The Astros had the best record uh, in the American League. They were the best team. And uh, that lineup, that pitching, Framber Valdez, Justin Verlander, uh, those guys went to work in the postseason. And you got a rookie shortstop winning MVP awards for two consecutive series. That That's not cheating. That is just a good team. Now, I hate the Astros. I despise them. Uh, they're in the same division as the Texas Rangers, so I do not like the Astros at all. But uh, they are a really good team, and the, the core of their team between Tucker and Pena and Alvarez, and those guys, they're all 25 years old or younger. So uh, that core is going to be intact for a while, and they're going to be uh, back in the World Series maybe again next year, but certainly multiple times over the next you know five to seven years, we'll say. Now, oddly enough, final note on the World Series, Houston Astros were actually the first team since the 2013 Boston Red Sox to win the World Series on their home field. I just thought that was kind of random and kind of odd, but first team in nine years to win the World Series on their home field. But nonetheless, I did correctly predict uh, Houston winning it in six games. That's exactly what happened. Uh, the series was pretty good, pretty competitive. You know, the first five games, um, you know, it, you really couldn't really tell who was going to win the World Series, you know. And then when Houston won game five in Philly is really where it changed because at that point you knew Houston was going home for two games and they there's no way that they were going to let it get to a game seven. But nonetheless, another good World Series and the Houston Astros are world champions. But we'll move over to the National Football League and do a standings update here in the NFL. Uh, Since the last episode, we've played weeks 8 and 9 in the NFL, so we are currently at week 10 as we sit right now. And there were a lot of good games in week 8, some more good games in week 9. And in the interest of time, we'll just kind of do the standings update. It's too much kind of to recap between weeks 8 and 9 as far as the games and whatnot. So... Uh, we'll start off here. Here is how the standings sit through nine weeks of the season. We'll start off in the AFC. The AFC East, the Buffalo Bills are still up top there at 6-2. and two. Uh, They lost to the New York Jets in week nine, who are second place at 6-3. and three. Uh, They haven't had their bye week yet. That's why Buffalo is still in front, just based on winning percentage. So Buffalo is 6-2. The New York Jets are 6-3. And the Miami Dolphins are also six and three. Now, those three teams all look like solid playoff teams. Of course, Buffalo, uh, they were my pick in the AFC to make it to the Super Bowl at the beginning of the year. Uh, but I will say, I think they have some company here in the AFC in terms of uh, elite level teams. Now, I don't believe the Jets are one of those elite teams, but they're very good. Their offense, fairly anemic, especially since they lost Brees Hall. Uh, Not great on the offensive side of the football, but the defense for the Jets is really what is uh, making them contend in every game. Uh, They got one of the better defenses in the league. Uh, They get a lot of pressure up front, and they have good secondary on the back end. And the Miami Dolphins, certainly with Tua at the helm, he leads the NFL in QBR uh, in 
games in which he's finished, right? He missed uh, basically two and a half games due to the concussion. So, uh, but Tua is firing on all cylinders. Tyreek Hill is on pace for well over 2,000 yards receiving to set that single season record. And uh, that, that team is just, that offense is, is nasty. They added some, some help on the defense at the trade deadline that we'll get into in a little bit. And then the New England Patriots, not to be forgotten, they're five and four in that division. Now, head coach Bill Belichick, after their week eight win a couple weeks ago, that was his 325th career victory as a head coach, which passed George Hallis for second most all-time in NFL history. He won in week nine as well, so he's at 326 wins, again, second most all-time in NFL history for a head coach. Patriots, uh, I don't think all four of these teams from this division are making the playoffs, so they very well could be the odd man out. Um, but it's still too early to tell. New England's right there in the mix with that group. But uh, Buffalo and Miami, to me, are the two top teams in that division, followed by the Jets close behind. So that is going to be one to keep an eye on uh, as we move forward. Over in the AFC North, Baltimore Ravens are 6-3 and three after their Monday night football win in Week 9 against New Orleans. Now, in that game, they uh, attained a double-digit lead, which made the Ravens the fifth team in the Super Bowl era to have a double-digit lead in each of their first nine games of the season. Now, of course, they've lost three games, as I just mentioned, so that means they've blown three double-digit leads so far this year. But the way they looked on Monday night against New Orleans, the way that Lamar Jackson was running the football, Kenyon Drake looking really good, J.K. Dobbins should be back in three or four weeks. So um, the Ravens have a bye in week 11, uh, or week 10 rather, <clears throat> coming up this week. The Ravens are on a bye week. So looking at their week 11 through 14 schedule, uh, the Ravens are playing teams with losing records. So the Ravens in a month from now could very well be sitting at 10-3. and three. In fact, they'll probably be favored in all four of those games. So Baltimore may end up with uh, the number one or two seed, depending on, on how that plays out. I mean, Buffalo and Kansas City obviously are the two best teams, I think, on paper in the AFC, but Baltimore is right there with them. Uh, that defense with Roquan Smith, who they added at the trade deadline, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, that defense is just nasty. So is their offense. You cannot stop that running game. So I would. Baltimore has now joined the conversation. They have entered the chat with uh, Buffalo and Kansas City for best team in the AFC. Cincinnati Bengals are second in that division at five and four. They lost Jamar Chase a couple weeks ago to a hip injury that's going to keep him out four to six weeks, so we're still another couple weeks away from seeing Jamar Chase back in the lineup, uh, but they are five and four, certainly looking pretty decent, at least for a, a wild card spot. Cleveland Browns are three and five. They still have a few weeks before they get uh, Deshaun Watson back, and then the Pittsburgh Steelers are two and six. Okay, the only thing Pittsburgh's playing for at this point is the number one overall pick. Over in the AFC South, some big news here in this division. Tennessee Titans, they're 5-3. and three. Now, they played on Sunday night here in Week 9 against Kansas City and took it to overtime with Malik Willis as their quarterback, who only completed five passes in that game. So with a rookie quarterback who only completed five passes, they took the Chiefs to overtime. Now, granted, the Chiefs did not play that well, but that game was in Arrowhead. Derrick Henry did what he does. 
over 100 yards, two touchdowns. And, uh, you know, Tennessee's not flashy, but they play in the AFC South. So uh, I would, with the way that it's going so far this year, I would almost guarantee at this point that the Titans are going to win that division. The Indianapolis Colts, they're 3-5-1. and one. So they're uh, second in the AFC South. They had a busy week, all right? They fired head coach Frank Reich after an abysmal game on Sunday in Week 9 against New England, okay? Frank Reich was 3-5-1 and one this year to start. He's been the head coach of Indianapolis since 2018. He's gone 40-33-1 in the regular season and 1-2 and in the postseason. Okay, and in the weirdest turn of events, the Colts named Jeff Saturday as their new interim head coach. Now, Jeff Saturday, yes, he was a six-time Pro Bowl center with the Colts, and he's been serving as a team consultant, but he spent the last several years as a football analyst on ESPN, right? NFL analyst on ESPN is what he's basically leaving the ESPN studios and going to coach the Indianapolis Colts. His only coaching experience is at the high school level, and it was not very good. So very interesting hire for Indianapolis. But, I mean, let's be honest, uh, they needed a change. And, and frankly, it can't get any worse than it did against New England on Sunday. They had a plethora of turnovers, blocked punts. I think they only had 120 yards of offense in the game. So uh, that was just putrid. So interesting stuff going on with the Colts. I doubt they overtake Tennessee for that division. Uh, Jacksonville Jaguars are three and six, so they're kind of right on the heels. They're only a half game back of the Colts. Uh, with the, with the way Jacksonville's roster is compared to Indies at the moment, I do like the Jaguars to possibly finish ahead of the Colts in that division. But uh, I mean, who knows at this point? Then the Houston Texans are one six and one. They're they're going to be right up there with the top three pick at the end of the year. And then over in the AFC West, the Kansas City Chiefs they're six and two. Another Big win on Sunday Night Football for Mahomes. He threw the ball almost 70 times, over 440 yards. And, uh, you know, again, we, we know Buffalo, we know Kansas City, but like I said, Baltimore is right up there with both of those two teams. Los Angeles Chargers are 5-3. and three. That has to be the ugliest 5-3 and three I've ever seen. Uh, they're minus 22 in point differential on the season, and somehow they're 5-3, and three, all right? Uh, they haven't had Keenan Allen pretty much all season. Mike Williams has been gone for a couple weeks. Austin Eckler and Justin Herbert are really the only two names on offense you'd recognize. They've done, dealt with a ton of injuries on the defensive side of the football as well. So I don't know how the hell the Chargers are 5-3, and three, uh, but again, right there in the wild card mix, um, we'll see. The injuries have to catch up with them at some point, I would think. Denver Broncos are 3-5. and five. That's, That team is, is, is horrible. We know that. Russell Wilson has just been a complete flop this year. Don't anticipate much from Denver the rest of the way. And then the Las Vegas Raiders are 2-6. and six. Certainly don't like anything about what they've done. They had a, they've blown three 17-point leads so far this year. And, and three of their six losses, they were up by 17 points, including this past week against Jacksonville. And they let Jacksonville come back and win. So uh, that team is going in the wrong direction. Josh McDaniels, is, uh, his days are numbered if he can't get it turned around. But over in the NFC... The NFC East, Philadelphia Eagles are 8-0 after their Thursday night win. Uh, they A loss is coming. Uh, a loss is on the horizon for Philadelphia. Not sure what game specifically it's going to be, but you know I, I just think they're going to trip up. Uh, they're 8-0, yes, but they've not 
really had a whole lot of challenging games. Um, When they played the Cowboys, it was the backup quarterback. You know, they've played Pittsburgh, who's not great. Washington, obviously. So not saying the Eagles aren't good. They're very good. Jalen Hurts is in the MVP conversation. Uh, But keep an eye on when that first loss is and how Philly responds. Dallas Cowboys are 6-2. All right, my beloved Dallas Cowboys right there in the mix. They got uh, a trip to Lambeau coming up this week. And uh, coming off a bye week, getting healthy, I think it's a, it's a good spot for the Cowboys. Their schedule's pretty favorable coming up here these next four or five weeks, so it's definitely possible the Cowboys uh, could hit double-digit wins. Uh, you know, in a month they they could win their next four and uh, be sitting up there at, at ten and two. That would be pretty awesome. But uh, one game at a time. Either way. The point is the Cowboys are a good team, have the best defense in the league, and will certainly be in the playoffs uh, if that continues. New York Giants are 6-2. and two. Again, that might be more fraudulent than the Chargers 5-3. and three. Uh, Giants coming off a bye week. Z- safety Xavier McKinney got hurt in an ATV accident in Mexico over the bye week, so he's going to miss a few weeks. Uh, not what you want to hear if you're the Giants, but... Uh, nonetheless, Giants are six and two. Washington Commanders four and five. They had a ten point lead in the fourth quarter against Minnesota uh, on Sunday in Week Nine and were not able to hang on. So they're four and five. The NFC North: Minnesota Vikings are seven and one. I just mentioned they had overcame a ten point deficit in the fourth quarter against Washington. They uh, made a huge acquisition at the trade deadline that we'll get into that helps them on offense, Uh, certainly one of the better offenses in the NFC. And they have a four-game lead in this division because the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears are both three and six. Packers, they dealt with a slew of injuries in this thing. They just lost to the Detroit Lions on Sunday for their fifth straight loss, all right? They've lost five in a row, so they are the... Uh, longest losing streak in the league. Uh, They lost Rashawn Gary to a torn ACL, so he's out for the year. Several other Green Bay Packers, a total of four of them, left the game in either crutches or a walking boot, including cornerback Eric Stokes. So that team is uh, on life support at the moment. Uh, Minnesota, they've won six games in a row. They're looking really good. I don't anticipate that Green Bay or Chicago is going to catch them. So that that division is pretty much wrapped up as we speak. But the Chicago Bears, they're 3-6 and six as well. This past week, uh, quarterback Justin Fields, he's been an absolute cheat code lately. In week nine here, he recorded the single most rushing yards in a game by a quarterback in NFL history. That's 178 yards on the ground. He just absolutely torched Miami. That game came down to the wire, okay? Um... I don't think that Chicago is a great team. They've made they were sellers at the trade deadline. They did make an acquisition on offense, but um you know, they're they're building for the future. But like I said, the way Minnesota's been playing six games in a row, they've won they got a four game lead. Uh, I don't see the Packers, the Bears, or the Lions making the playoffs. Lions are two and six after their win against Green Bay. So NFC North is pretty much wrapped up. I don't anticipate uh, Minnesota falling out of the top spot the rest of the way. Like I said, Green Bay just absolutely putrid. Aaron Rodgers may have had the worst game of his career this past week. Uh, Meanwhile, Justin Fields is on the rise as one of the best young quarterbacks in the game. 
Over in the NFC South, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Atlanta Falcons, all right, they're both four and five. Now, Tampa Bay, they lost in week eight on Thursday night football, which gave them a three-game losing streak. It was Tom Brady's first three-game losing streak in 302 starts, right? That's since 2002, Tom Brady had not lost three games in a row. Now, in that week eight game, linebacker Shaq Barrett, he tore his Achilles, so he's out for the year, all right? That's a tough blow to that defense. And then week nine, this past Sunday, Tom Brady became the first player in NFL history to pass for 100,000 career yards. That's regular and postseason. Tampa Bay is not very good. They don't look good. They barely beat the Rams. It took a a last-minute miracle for the Bucs to beat the Rams, who are not very good. And uh, that that team, they're certainly not the Buccaneers uh, of the past couple years. That is for sure. Atlanta, somehow four and five. Don't know how they're tied for the division lead at the moment. But talk about ugly football. Uh, they, they just somehow are in every game. They are super competitive in every game, and I don't know how. Um, their team is not good. They run the ball probably more than any team in the league. And they don't really have great running backs. They just got Cordero Patterson back this this week. So uh, that should help moving forward. But I, again, if you'd have told me Atlanta would be four and five through nine weeks, uh, I, I probably would not have believed that. The New Orleans Saints are three and six after stumbling at home on Monday night. Uh, they need to get Jameis Winston back. Uh, Andy Dalton has just not been good. He's not been bad, but he's not been good, right? So Jameis Winston, the way he's able to air it out more than Dalton, uh, I think they need to incorporate that a little more uh, in order to be competitive because the Saints just uh, did not look good on Monday. And then the Carolina Panthers, they're 2-7. and seven. Uh, Again, they're in that Houston-Pittsburgh conversation for a top overall pick in the draft. Over in the NFC West, the Seattle Seahawks continue to win. They are 6-3. and three. They've won four games in a row. And uh, just, you know, again, just one of those, if you'd have told me Seattle would be 6-3 and three leading the NFC West after nine weeks, I would have straight up called you a liar. So, but that's what's happening. They have a two-game lead over the San Francisco 49ers, who are 4-4. Four and four. Uh, They were on a bye week this past week. The Niners, though, in week eight, Christian McCaffrey had himself a game. He became the first player since LaDainian Tomlinson in 2005 to have a passing, rushing, and receiving touchdown in the same game. And he was also the first player with at least 30 pass yards, 30 rush yards, and 30 receiving yards in a game since himself in 2018. So that's a huge acquisition. I do think that San Francisco can catch Seattle. Uh, The way that Seattle's been playing is very good. Their defense is much improved. Kenneth Walker III is probably going to win Offensive Rookie of the Year if he continues at this torrid pace. Uh, But uh, San Francisco's lineup from top to bottom, I think, is the best in that division, especially with adding McCaffrey. So uh, I would certainly think Seattle's in contention for a playoff spot, but I would not be shocked if San Francisco ended up passing them uh, in the division in the next three or four weeks. The Los Angeles Rams are 3-5, and five, lost to Tampa Bay this week. I told you gave up a 60-yard drive in the final minute to, uh, to lose that one as time expired pretty much. Rams are not good. They haven't been good all year. Uh, their point differential is minus 42, 
which is third worst in the NFC behind Carolina and Detroit. So uh, their offense can't score any points. They have the lowest point total, points four, in the entire NFC. Just an absolutely terrible season for L.A., especially after their Super Bowl victory last year. The Rams are not a playoff team. Uh, they're not going to be a playoff team, and that's that's just how it's going to be. I mean, they have the certainly have the lineup to make it up, but the way that what they've shown us through eight games, uh, the Rams aren't making the playoffs, and neither are the Arizona Cardinals at three and six. All right, they are they're extremely disappointing. Uh, again, their three wins have all been rather lucky or fortuitous. We'll say, uh, just it's taken a lot to get those three wins. So. Uh, it's been a wild, wacky NFL season. We're only through uh, nine weeks, like I said. We're, we're in week 10, right? And it's, it's, it's been fun, certainly. And there's been a lot of teams that uh, are in the playoff mix that you wouldn't have thought at the beginning of the year would be. So um, it's going to be an exciting last, you know, seven weeks or so. But... Uh, eight weeks, I guess. But we'll look ahead to this week, all right, week 10, Thursday night football. That's a, that's going to be, I bet it's a competitive game between Atlanta and Carolina, but my goodness, on paper, that looks to be a snooze fest. Uh, the game's on Sunday, uh, some good ones. Minnesota goes to Buffalo. Uh, that's going to be a really good game. Uh, probably a lot better than you would have thought at the beginning of the year. Uh Jacksonville at Arrowhead, you know, that has the propensity to get out of control, but we'll see if Jacksonville can make it interesting. Um, Indianapolis Colts, right? They just hired Jeff Saturday as the interim coach straight out of the uh, ESPN studio. He makes his coaching debut against the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, I make note of this because the game is in Vegas, and about a week ago, Jeff Saturday tweeted out that the Las Vegas Raiders look horrible. All right, if you've seen it online, uh, somebody screenshotted that, and uh, I'm sure the Raiders are using that as bulletin board material. But yeah, that's uh, that's going to be interesting to see how Jeff Saturday does. Uh, my Dallas Cowboys go to Lambeau Field. Mike McCarthy's return to Green Bay. Uh, Packers have lost five straight. Aaron Rodgers looks putrid. They have a slew of injuries, and. Uh, Cowboys are five-point favorites. Surprised it's not higher, to be honest. Cowboys coming out of the bye week. I certainly like Dallas in that one. And then a couple other good games, Arizona and Los Angeles, the Rams. Uh, That game uh, at the beginning of the year would have been a lot better than it is now, but uh, I do think that will probably be a decent game just because of how bad those teams have both played this year. And then the Chargers go to uh, San Francisco on Sunday night football. So uh, that should be a good game. Um, Again, you know, uh, we just talked about those teams, but uh, that should be a good game. Then Monday Night Football brings us Washington at Philly, and Philly's at home. I don't expect their first loss to come this week, but the way that Washington played against Minnesota, if they can do that against Philadelphia, I do think they'll be in that game and it will be competitive. But certainly have a, a good and exciting Week 10 to look forward to, so we will check back in next week and see how it went down. But we'll move over to college football and uh, talk about the last couple of weeks in college football. We are through 10 weeks of the college football season. Every team has played nine games. Uh, Each team has had their bye week, of course, so that makes the 10 weeks of of the regular season. 
And being that we did not have an episode last week, uh, last week was the first release of the college football playoff rankings. And I mentioned on the last episode that we would no longer do the AP Top 25. We would just talk about the college football playoff rankings since those uh, take precedence now in, in this late in the season. So uh, just to quickly kind of go over some stuff from week nine, which was about a week and a half ago, uh, crazy couple of crazy games. Uh, Oklahoma State was ranked number nine at the time they uh, played Kansas State. And Kansas State just absolutely pummeled them 48 nothing. It was the largest ever shutout loss by a top 10 ranked team versus a lower ranked team. Now, Kansas State at the time, I believe, was 13. So it wasn't like it was a huge upset, but the score uh, was the largest ever shutout loss by a top 10 ranked team. So just a complete embarrassment there for Oklahoma State. The Wake Forest-Louisville game. Wake Forest was ranked number 10 at this time. They lost 48-21 to to Louisville, and in doing so, they committed eight turnovers in the second half. Uh, it was almost comical, right? Uh, it, was, it was the most turnovers by an FBS team in a half over the last 15 years, all right? They actually, Wake Forest fumbled on five straight drives in the third quarter. Uh, that, like, you can't even make that up. You felt like you were watching the same highlight over and over, except it was five different drives. So uh, Wake Forest obviously uh, took it on the chin there. And then this past week in Week 10, we had some damn good games. Uh, the one, uh, probably the most, I guess, game that everyone was looking forward to the most was the Georgia-Tennessee game. That's where college game day was. The lowest ticket price to get into that thing was $626, which was the most expensive to get in any college football game in history. Most expensive get-in price of any college football game in history. Most expensive ticket was about $5,200. Now, the game was in Georgia. Georgia's defense, we know what they can do versus Tennessee's offense, which was obviously one of the best, if not the best, so far this season. Tennessee was ranked number one. Georgia was ranked number three going into the game. Georgia's defense just stifled uh, that Tennessee offense. That you know, It really was not a close game. I think it only ended up being a two-score game, the final score, but uh, Georgia's defense made Tennessee's offense look highly pedestrian. So uh, Georgia won that one. And the other good game was uh, Alabama and LSU. That game was in Baton Rouge. Crazy, crazy game. It actually went into overtime. In overtime, the first overtime, uh, Alabama uh, scored a touchdown on their first possession, kicked the extra point. LSU got the ball. Very first play of their drive, Jaden Daniels, the quarterback, ran it in from 25 yards out. And instead of kicking an extra point to tie it and send it to the second overtime where you would have to go for two, LSU just went ahead and went for two and ended up getting it. All right, so LSU beat Alabama. Just a crazy game. And then the wildest game of the week this past week in college football was SMU versus Houston. A little American Athletic Conference action there. That game was straight up banana land. All right, SMU ended up winning the game 77 to 63. And no, they did not go into overtime. That was the regulation score, 77-63. In fact, it was the highest scoring regulation game in FBS history. So uh, that was a historic game in its own right. 
SMU quarterback Tanner Mordecai, he had nine touchdown passes, okay? Nine of them. Just incredible. I think he ran another one in, was responsible for 10 touchdowns, all right? That is just uh, ridiculous. Those are video game numbers, but that brings us to uh, week 10, the college football playoff rankings. Again, this uh, is only the second week that the playoff rankings have been released, and these change every week based on how the games go. The only rankings that matter for college football are the playoff rankings at the very end of the season, Selection Sunday, as they call it. So um, those are the final rankings, but the rankings here over the next few weeks kind of give us a uh, uh, a map, roadmap, so to speak, of of how it's going to look. Now, with the playoff rankings, the only teams that matter at this point in the season are only about the top 10 or 12. So we're only going to cover how that goes. And we're going to go from 1 to 12 just because that makes the most sense. The number one overall team in the country right now, the playoff rankings, is the Georgia Bulldogs. All right. They moved up two spots. They were three. They beat Tennessee at home. So they moved up to number one. I do believe that they are the best team in the country. Uh, That defense certainly is the best. And if that offense gets going, uh, watch out. So Georgia, they uh, by beating Tennessee, that SEC East is uh, is theirs uh, pretty much, and they have a few more games to play, obviously, but uh, it looks like they will be in Atlanta for the SEC championship game. So uh, Georgia's looking really good. Number two is Ohio State, all right? Uh, they uh, did not look overly impressive at Northwestern this past week. There was obviously a little bit of weather going on in that game, really windy. Uh, They ended up taking care of business. Ohio State, I think, certainly on paper is the second best team. Maybe maybe the best team on paper, but uh, they've had a few games in which they haven't really looked all that great. But uh, number three is Michigan. Now, Ohio State and Michigan play each other in a couple of weeks, so we will get a decision on who the better team is uh, when they play each other in Columbus here in a couple of weeks. But... um, all three of those teams, Georgia, Ohio State, and Michigan, are all 9-0. and The number four team in the playoff rankings uh, is TCU. Now, last week, they were number seven. At 8-0, they were number seven. Well, they, they you know, went ahead and beat Texas Tech by 10 at home. They got down in that game, but ended up coming back, seeming like they do that every weekend. But uh, TCU ends up with a 10-point win. They're 9-0. and and they moved up to the number four spot. Now, I'll remind you that the college football playoffs are only the top four teams, so that's why these rankings, only the top 10 to 12 matter at this point because only the top four teams make it to the college football playoffs. So as of right now, that's Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, and TCU, all 9-0 and teams, right? The only four 9-0 and teams uh, in these rankings. So uh, that's how it looks right now. That that's obviously subject to change because, like I mentioned, Ohio State and Michigan play each other in a couple of weeks, so uh, one of those teams will drop out of the top four. Now, the number five team is Tennessee. Right, so they went from one to five after that loss to Georgia, which is a fairly decent spot for them. Their resume is probably the most impressive in all of college football with the number of ranked wins that they have. And uh, the eye test would tell you that they certainly are uh, an upper echelon team. So 
Tennessee's in a good spot because, like I said, either Michigan or Ohio State are going to lose. Uh, TCU's got a huge game this weekend in Austin, so it's very likely that, that Tennessee will be back up inside that top four either next week uh, or the week after that. So um, keep an eye on Tennessee. They're still looking good to make the playoff. They just have to win out. They're not making it to the SEC championship game because they lost to Georgia, but they still have a very good mathematical chance to make the playoffs. Number six is Oregon. They're 8-1. and one. Uh, Their only loss was the first game of the year to Georgia when they got pummeled, uh, but that, was, that game was in Atlanta, and it was the first game with a new head coach and a new quarterback. Now, Oregon, uh, again, the eye test tells you and their resume tells you that they are definitely one of the best teams in the country. Certainly nobody looks forward to playing them, and they've only gotten better as the season's gone on. So uh, Oregon, at this point, they also have a pretty good chance. Uh, the Pac-12 is kind of wide open. You're going to have a one-loss Pac-12 champion. So uh, that very well could be Oregon uh, here as we get into the conference championship weekend in a few weeks. Number seven is LSU. They moved up three spots from 10 after beating Alabama. All right, LSU needs to win out. Uh, They need Ole Miss to beat Alabama in order for them to make it to the SEC championship game because they have already beaten Ole Miss. But uh, I don't know. LSU basically needs to win out and win the SEC championship in order for them to get in. So they have a pretty tough road. Number eight is USC. They're eight and one. They got a big game against Notre Dame the last game of the year. I, you know, I, they're a good team, all right? And if they if they win the Pac-12 with one loss, depending on what happens with TCU and, you know, Tennessee, it's very likely that USC might be right there on the fringe. Number nine is Alabama. They're seven and two. Uh, very easily could be uh, five and four at this point. That one point win over Texas in the last minute, and then the hang on uh, goal line stop against Texas A and M. Alabama's just not the same that we've seen in recent years. Um, so uh, Alabama has, you know, they're number nine. So in theory, they potentially still have a chance, but I, I do believe mathematically they are eliminated. They will not be in the SEC championship game, and. Um, Without that, they already have two losses. Alabama's not getting in, even with the Alabama bias that seems to be really prevalent in those this college football playoff committee. Number 10 is Clemson. They're 8-1. and one. Their loss came this week. They dropped down six spots. They just got thumped in South Bend against Notre Dame this past week. Uh, I thought Clemson was fraudulent to begin with. They almost lost to Syracuse a few weeks ago. Uh, they're just, I don't think they're that good. And the committee would agree with that by moving them down six spots after that loss. So you can go ahead and write Clemson off. Number 11 is Ole Miss. They're eight and one. The only reason they still potentially have a chance, uh, you know, they, if they beat Alabama, you know, some things would have to happen. LSU would have to lose another game uh, in order for them to make it to the SEC championship. But mathematically, it's still alive for Ole Miss. Number 12 is UCLA. They're 8-1. and one. Again, they're in the Pac-12 with USC and uh, Oregon. So out of those three teams, one of them will be your Pac-12 champion and have one loss. I guess Utah at 13 
could still maybe potentially win the Pac-12, but because uh, Utah did beat USC, they're, they're their only loss. So uh, those are the top 13. Realistically, um, you know, we're looking at some combination probably of, of Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, potentially TCU, Tennessee, Oregon, you know, LSU, USC. I, th- I think four out of those eight will probably be in the playoff. This weekend, the biggest game on the schedule is uh, number four TCU against number 18 Texas. Uh, the Horn Frogs come down to Austin to play my Longhorns. Uh, Longhorns opened up as a seven-point favorite, which I think is, is a little bit nutty uh, given the rankings. But college game day is going to be in Austin for the second time this year. And um, it's a big game. Texas has a lot of uh, high-profile recruits in town for that one. I, man, I, I would love for Texas to win. That would bump them up probably four or five spots in the ranking. It would certainly drop TCU like a rock, uh, but Texas just needs it for multiple reasons. Uh, it would be a big program boost win and uh, help maybe secure some of the, the top flight recruits that will be there. But that's the biggest game on the schedule. Um, and we'll, we'll check back in next week. Again, these playoff rankings come out every Tuesday from here until the end of the season, until that final selection weekend where they, they determine the playoff uh actual playoff order there, top four. But a lot of stuff can happen over these final few weeks, and it's going to be exciting to see. We could have quite a bit of movement just uh, after this week. So we will check back in and just keep you updated on the playoff rankings from here until the end of the college football season. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do a standings update here in the NHL. Uh, Most teams have played anywhere between Uh, 11 to 13 games so we uh, are still you know very early into the season but in the Eastern Conference the Metropolitan Division big surprise here the New Jersey Devils are nine and three right leading that division uh, that has been one of the more surprising teams so far Carolina Hurricanes are eight three and one New York Islanders are eight and five New York Rangers six four and three uh, Philadelphia Flyers six three and two, Washington Capitals six six and two. Now Alex Ovechkin scored his seven hundred and eighty seventh career goal the other night, which passed Gordie Howe for the most goals scored with a single franchise. All right, of course Ovechkin's played for the Capitals his whole career, and uh, all seven hundred and eighty seven of his goals have come with the Capitals. Now uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins certainly. Penguins are four six and two. The Capitals are six six and two. Penguins are four six and two. Both of those teams uh, should be in the playoffs, you would think. But those have been two of the more disappointing teams so far this year. Uh, Penguins captain Sidney Crosby he recorded his nine hundredth career assist the other night, becoming the sixth fastest player in NHL history to reach that milestone. So you have two future first ballot Hall of Famers playing. And uh, both of their teams are just not playing well to start the year. So, um, you know, uh, I would I would certainly think they'll turn it around at some point. But, you know, Washington's 14 games in. The uh, quarter mark of the season is obviously uh, about 20 games. So we are approaching that. 
Columbus is three and nine. All right, three and nine. Not they're not going to be relevant this year. Over in the Atlantic Division, the Boston Bruins have been one of the best teams in the league. They're eleven and two. Their offense is is insane. They won most of those first thirteen games without Brad Marchand. Uh, he returned to the lineup, and they still continue to win. So uh, look out for Boston. The Detroit Red Wings are 7-3-2, another good surprise so far this year. Uh, great young team there in Detroit. Uh, I did boldly predict that they would be a playoff team this year, and um, they're certainly living up to that. The Toronto Maple Leafs are 7-4-2. They got off to a really slow start, but they've uh, been playing really well. They've won three in a row. Tampa Bay Lightning are 7-4-1. They're another team that started off uh, pretty bad lost uh, several of their first you know handful of games and uh, they've kind of rebounded there uh Florida Panthers 7-5 and 1 again another playoff team they won the President's Cup last year President's Trophy rather and um they're kind of off to a slow start just mainly because you know Boston's been playing so well Detroit same thing so uh I would look for Florida to be in the mix there at the end the Buffalo Sabres, they're 7-5. and five. Uh, Tage Thompson, forward Tage Thompson, young, great young, basically, uh, you know, he's, I say power forward like it's basketball, but he's a, he's a big, tall, physical left winger. He had a three-game stretch last week where he had 11 points in three games. That is just insane. He had six points on Halloween night. He had three goals and three assists. Uh, he's really got off to a great start. He's a big reason why Buffalo is, is in the mix so far uh, in the young season. The Montreal Canadiens are 5-6-1. and one. Uh, They also are a very young team. Uh, they had the first overall pick in the draft last year after uh, not you know being the worst team in the league, and, and I think they're, they're certainly going to be uh, down there again this year. The Ottawa Senators are 4-7. and seven. Uh, they made some moves this offseason. I thought they'd be a little more relevant than they have been, but uh, such is the case. Over in the Western Conference, the Central Division, uh, the Dallas Stars. My Dallas Stars are currently up top in the Central. Uh, they're 8-3-1. and one. You know, they've been playing really good hockey. They're plus 19 in goal differential, which is tied for the best in the entire Western Conference with the Vegas Golden Knights. So, um they are playing really good hockey. Last year, goal scoring was a real problem for the Stars. This year, it has not been, all right? They have been scoring goals in bunches. Uh, in fact, they uh, are third in the Western Conference in goals four. So Dallas is playing really good. That system that Pete DeBoer has got them playing uh, has them looking really good. Jason Robertson was the NHL's first star of the week uh, this past week. He's been on a tear and uh, the Stars look like they're for real. Winnipeg Jets are 7-3-1, right behind Dallas. Colorado Avalanche, 6-4-1. It's taken them a few games to get going, but uh, they're they're finally playing well. The Chicago Blackhawks are 5-5-2, which is positive after their uh, terrible season last year. Minnesota Wild are 5-5-1. Nashville Predators, 5-6-1. All right, they... Um, you know, they are a perennial playoff team, but they've just not been off to a great start. Arizona Coyotes are 4-6-1. and one. We knew they'd probably be at the bottom of the league, and that's 
pretty much where they're at, except that the St. Louis Blues are three and seven. Uh, that has probably been the most surprising uh, team uh, in terms of where they're at right now. Way more disappointing than Pittsburgh or Washington because those teams are still kind of you know in that only a few points from being. Uh, at the top of that division, St. Louis only has six points. Right, they are eleven points behind Dallas right now, uh, and that's that's get, it's almost getting to be too much to make up. You know, as far as I know, it's early, but man, St. Louis is off to a terrible start. Over in the Pacific Division, the Vegas Golden Knights—they are killing it this year. They're eleven and two, same record as Boston. Uh, they've played really well. Their offense is firing on all cylinders, and. Most surprising team so far, the Seattle Kraken. Uh, they are second in the Pacific at seven four and two. Okay, they they made some free agent signings and um, got some good young players in the in the last couple of drafts that are playing. And uh, that team is, you know, I, I, I'm not ready to say they're going to make the playoffs at this point in the season. But man, they they've played really well, and uh, I would not be shocked if the Kraken end up making the playoffs uh, this year. Los Angeles Kings are 7-6-1. and one. Edmonton Oilers are 7-6. and six. Calgary Flames 5-4-2. That's probably slightly disappointing for them after their uh, second-round uh, playoff appearance this year. The Vancouver Canucks, 3-6-3. Three, three. They were down there last year. That's pretty much where they've been staying. The Anaheim Ducks are 4-8-1. Again, they were down at the bottom of this division last year. And then the San Jose Sharks, uh, they're 3-8-3. Three, three. Defenseman Eric Carlson, he's been the lone bright spot. He became the first defenseman in the NHL since 1937 to score at least 10 goals in their first 13 games of the season. So he's been playing well. The team has not been playing well. Um, with that, the teams ahead of them in that division, uh, Vegas, Edmonton, Calgary, Los Angeles, and the surprise of Seattle, uh, I don't see San Jose or Anaheim or really even Vancouver uh, contending this year in that division. But again, very young season, still a lot of games left. Uh, by the time next episode comes out, we should be close to the quarter mark of the season. So we will check back in then and see how the standings look. But we'll move over to the NBA, do a quick standings update in the NBA this season is even younger than the NHL season. Most teams have played about 10 games or so, so we're just going to rifle through this. Over in the Eastern Conference, the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, they are 9-1. and They actually started the season 9-0 and before losing their first game, so they are uh, certainly looking very formidable. The Cleveland Cavaliers are 8-2. and They just acquired Donovan Mitchell in the offseason, and uh, that has paid dividends to pair with Darius Garland. They're 8-2, and two, looking very good. Boston Celtics, amid all their drama with the coaching and whatnot, they're 7-3. and three. Atlanta Hawks are 7-3. and three. Uh, They actually just beat Milwaukee the other night uh, to give them their first loss, and they did so without Trey Young. Toronto Raptors are 6-5. and five. Chicago Bulls are 6-6. Six and six. Uh, Bulls guard DeMar DeRozan, he scored his 20,000th career point uh, last week. Uh, so Chicago, you know, that lineup is certainly good enough to, to contend. Indiana Pacers, 5-5. Five five. New York Knicks, 5-5. Five five. 
Washington Wizards 5-6. And, and the Philadelphia 76ers are 10th in the East right now at 5-6. And, and they just lost James Harden to a right foot tendon strain. So he's going to miss about a month. That's not good for Philly. They have uh, vastly underwhelmed this year. And so too have the Brooklyn Nets who are 11th in the East at 4-7. and seven. Uh, They have made a coaching change. I'll I'll explain more of that in Around the Island here in just a minute. But uh, Brooklyn Nets are in all kinds of problems. Uh, They're four and seven. That lineup, there's absolutely no way a team uh, in which Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons should be four and seven. Now, granted, Ben Simmons had missed some games with, uh, of course, this injury that he always has. And then Kyrie Irving was suspended five games by the Nets for. Uh, conduct detrimental to the team so uh, and again they just had a coaching issue so that team is an absolute shambles but that is just uh, it's not going well for Brooklyn we'll say that the Miami Heat they're probably one of the more disappointing teams uh, in the NBA so far they're four and seven Charlotte Hornets are three and eight and the Detroit Pistons are also three and eight but uh, Detroit re-signed forward uh Boyan Bogdanovich, two years, $39.1 million. So he is now uh, tied to the Pistons through the 2024-2025 season. Uh, they have a great young core there in Detroit with Cade Cunningham and Jaden Ivey, who's looked really, really good this year as a rookie. Orlando Magic, they're 2-9, and nine, but man, Paolo Bancaro, the number one overall pick in the draft this past summer, has been uh, absolutely everything as advertised and more. Uh, he is terrific. Multiple 30-point games already this year. Uh, Magic have certainly played better than their 2-9 and nine record would indicate. Over in the Western Conference, Utah Jazz 9-3, and three, Phoenix Suns 7-3, and three, Portland Trailblazers 7-3, and three, Denver Nuggets 7-3, and three, and then the Dallas Mavericks. My Mavericks, they're 6-3. and three. They've won four games in a row. They started off a little slow. They lost two of their first three, uh, but now they're 6-3. and three. Luka Doncic, my goodness, uh, he became the first player since Michael Jordan in 86-87 to score at least 30 points in each of his team's first six games. He actually has 30 points in all nine games so far, including one game with 44 points. Luka Doncic is the best player in the NBA right now as it sits here in uh, November of 2022. Luka Doncic is the best player in the NBA. He is going to win the NBA's MVP award this year if Dallas can make the playoffs, uh, and I do not doubt that for a second. The Memphis Grizzlies are 7-4, and four. Los Angeles Clippers 6-5, and five. New Orleans Pelicans 5-5, five and five. San Antonio Spurs, they're 5-6, and six. probably one of the more surprising teams so far this year, and I say that because San Antonio was uh, highly rumored to be in the Victor Wembenyama sweepstakes for the number one overall pick. Uh, the Spurs actually started out five and two, but they lost the last four games. But even still, for them, that's that's still a good record for what their roster looks like. Minnesota Timberwolves five and six. Uh, Oklahoma City Thunder four and six. They're a, a young team. Shea Gilgis Alexander is is he's one becoming one of the best players in the league too. Certainly in the top probably 15 to 20 players in the league. He is exceptional on a bad team. And then the most, there's there's two teams in the Western Conference that have been the most disappointing. One of them currently sits at the 12 spot in the West, and that's the Golden State Warriors. They're four and seven. 
the defending champion Golden State Warriors, four and seven. That is absolutely inexcusable. Should not happen. They've had a full complement of roster, you know, between Steph, Clay, you know, Draymond, you know, that that whole well, Steph and Clay, you know, by themselves should put you uh, you know, near the top of the West. But that just has not been the case. Uh, just a horrible start for the Warriors, you know, but they're they're going to be in the playoff mix. I mean, we, we know this. Sacramento Kings are three and six, and then the Los Angeles Lakers, 14th in the West, second to last in the Western Conference. They are two and eight, okay? That is, talk about an underachieving team. They got LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and they're two and eight. Um, that's I, I don't I can't even tell you what's going on with that. Um, they've lost three games in a row. They're just you know I I can't sit here right now and tell you that the Lakers are a playoff team. Their roster would indicate that they are, but ten games in they've only won two. I mean, come on, that's that is horrible. And then the Houston Rockets are two and nine. The Lakers have almost the same record as the Houston Rockets. Uh, who had that ten games into the season? Because I sure didn't. Uh, but again, very young season, and so we'll we'll have to see how it turns out. Some good basketball and uh, some surprising teams, just kind of like the NHL. There's some teams that have, are doing pretty well that we didn't think would, and uh, teams that we thought would do well that aren't. So. Uh, But again, a lot of games to go here in the NBA. But we'll move over to our segment called Around the Island. That is where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. Definitely a very loaded segment this week. We'll start off in the National Football League. And since the last episode a couple of weeks ago, the NFL's trade deadline has passed. So you probably have heard about a lot of these trades, but I just want to go through them just so that way uh, we can get you caught up in case you have not. Uh, The trade deadline was last week, so a lot of these guys have already played their first game with their new teams. But we had an absolute flurry of trades at the NFL trade deadline. Uh, It was actually a record number of trades this year. Normally, the NFL is one of the uh, slower trade deadlines in comparison to that of the uh, Major League Baseball or NHL or even the NBA trade deadline where we normally see a lot of movement. The NFL is usually pretty quiet, but this NFL trade deadline was the busiest of all time. Certainly very exciting. We'll start off uh, before the deadline itself. Kansas City Chiefs, they acquired wide receiver Kadarius Toney from the New York Giants in exchange for a conditional third-round pick and a sixth-round pick. So that just gives the Chiefs more speed on offense. Of course, Toney was kind of disgruntled and New York didn't really get on the field, and it just almost is the rich getting richer there in Kansas City. They are uh, nothing but speed on offense, and Tony just simply adds to that, so that's a good trade for Kansas City. The Baltimore Ravens, they acquired all-pro linebacker Roquan Smith from the Chicago Bears in exchange for a second and fifth round pick. Now, the Bears also got linebacker A.J. Klein in the deal, but Roquan Smith, not only is he a pro bowler, he's an all-pro, he was the NFL's leading tackler at the time of the trade. And um, with how much he plays, I certainly expect him to finish near the top of the league in tackles. That's a great trade for the Ravens. They play, of course, in the AFC, which is 
super competitive, far more competitive than the NFC this particular year. So uh, that is a great uh, middle-of-the-defense player there for the Ravens who pride themselves on playing good defense. Minnesota Vikings, they made a big move. They went out and acquired tight end TJ Hawkinson and a conditional fourth-round pick next year from the Detroit Lions in exchange for a second-round pick and a uh, this year and a third-round pick next year in 2024. So uh, Vikings tight end Irv Smith suffered a high ankle sprain in week eight, which forced them to make this move. He's going to be out eight to ten weeks. So Hawkinson, the Vikings are in win-now mode. So Hawkinson just, uh, he not only fills that gap, he's better than Irv Smith and gives them, you know, another elite pass-catching option to go with Justin Jefferson Adam Thielen, and then, of course, Dalvin Cook out of the backfield. So that Vikings offense just got even scarier. Uh, Hawkinson was very heavily targeted uh, in his debut. He had caught all nine targets for 70 yards, so they wasted no time getting him in the mix. The Miami Dolphins were uh, the most active team at the trade deadline. They went out and they acquired Pro Bowl defensive end Bradley Chubb and a 2025 fifth-round pick from the Denver Broncos in exchange for a first-round pick this year, which previously belonged to the San Francisco 49ers, a 2024 fourth-round pick, and running back Chase Edmonds. They all went to Denver. It's a huge get for that Dolphins defense. Gives them an elite pass rusher. Of course, they play in the AFC East, where you have uh, the Buffalo Bills, right with Josh Allen, that prolific offense. You know, and the Jets have a lot of good skill position players too. So uh, that gives them uh, an elite pass rusher on the on the defensive side of the ball. And immediately following that trade, the Dolphins signed Bradley Chubb to a five-year, one hundred nineteen million dollar extension, sixty-three point two of that being guaranteed money. So great trade for Miami. Mentioned they weren't done there. They went out and they acquired running back Jeff Wilson from the San Francisco Forty ers in exchange for a fifth-round pick in this upcoming draft. It reunites Jeff Wilson with uh, Miami Dolphins head coach Mike McDaniel, who was the offensive coordinator in San Francisco last year. Wilson was very active in his first game. He had a receiving touchdown and uh, quite a few carries and and catches. So great acquisition for Miami. And um, basically that first-round pick that Miami gave up that belonged to San Francisco to get Bradley Chubb, was the third of their uh, three first-round picks. Uh, Basically, in that trade that San Francisco made with Miami to move up to get uh, Trey Lance a couple drafts ago, the Dolphins have turned those three first-round picks into Tyreek Hill, Bradley Chubb, and they used one of them to move up in the draft to draft Jalen Waddell. So Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddell, and Bradley Chubb are basically what the Dolphins got for that uh, that Trey Lance trade with the 49ers. So I would say Miami certainly, certainly won that trade. The Chicago Bears, they went out and got help for Justin Fields. They acquired wide receiver Chase Claypool from the Pittsburgh Steelers in exchange for a second-round pick this year. Uh, Claypool was one of the main subjects that was rumored to be probably on the move, and it did, in fact, end up coming to fruition. He goes to Chicago. And uh, I think he'll probably be a little more involved in Chicago than he was in Pittsburgh just due to the lack of other pass-catching options. Pittsburgh Steelers, after trading away Claypool, they acquired cornerback William Jackson III 
and a conditional seventh-round pick in 2025 from the Washington Commanders in exchange for a conditional sixth-round pick in 2025. The Buffalo Bills, they acquired running back Naheem Hines from the Indianapolis Colts in exchange for running back Zach Moss and a sixth-round pick that could become a fifth-round pick in this upcoming draft. So good trade for Buffalo. That gives them uh, just another uh, pass-catching running back solid option to go uh, with Devin, Devin Singletary and James Cook. So uh, just a great move for Buffalo, good depth. And then this is where we'll, we'll stop the, the trade conversation. The last one we'll talk about it was a weird trade. It was a big one, but it was a weird one. All right, the Jacksonville Jaguars, they acquired wide receiver Calvin Ridley from the Atlanta Falcons. Now, Ridley is currently serving a one-year suspension for betting on Falcons games, all right? So he has not played at all this year, and he will not play this year. And there's all kinds of conditions on this trade, okay? So the main one is that if Calvin Ridley gets reinstated by a certain date, uh, it's worth a 2023 fifth-round pick. So fifth-round pick this year. If not, it's a 2023 sixth-round pick, okay? So it's either a fifth or a sixth depending on when Ridley gets reinstated. Now, if Ridley makes the Jaguars roster in 2024, it's at least a fourth-round pick in 2024. Playing time could push that to a third-round pick, and if the Jaguars get a long-term contract with Ridley done, that third-round pick could become a second-round pick. My goodness, uh, that is a mouthful, but... The point is, is that the Jaguars got Calvin Ridley for either a fifth or sixth round pick this year and either a fourth, third, or second round pick next year. My guess is Jacksonville would not have made that trade if they don't plan on playing him next year a lot and re-signing him to a long-term deal because he still is relatively young in age and he'll have a year off, less wear and tear. So my guess is that they're probably going to end up with a fifth-round pick this year in 2023 and a second-round pick in 2024. That's just a guess. We'll have to see on that. But either way, that is a weird trade. Certainly great for the Jaguars. Uh, give Christian Kirk some help next year. But, man, that uh, talk about a conditional trade. We'll move over to the NBA. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets and head coach Steve Nash mutually agreed to part ways. Uh, they got off to a 2-5 and five start, which for them and that roster is just absolutely horrendous. It was originally reported to be a firing by the Nets, but it was later confirmed that the decision was a mutual one to part ways. And it was originally reported that assistant coach Jacques Vaughn was going to take over the head coaching duties in the immediate future. But then right after that news broke, it was reported that Brooklyn was expected to name Boston Celtics head coach Ime Udoka as their new head coach. Now, Ime Udoka is currently serving a one-year suspension by the Boston Celtics for violation of their team's personal conduct policy for inappropriate communications with female staff members. So it wasn't an NBA suspension. It was a Boston Celtics uh, team suspension. So basically, Brooklyn was like, okay, well, you're suspended from Boston. How about you come coach the Brooklyn Nets, right? So Brooklyn swooped in, saved the day for Udoka, 
Now, keep in mind, Udoka took the Celtics to the NBA Finals last year in his very first year as a head coach. So uh, certainly something to keep an eye on there with Brooklyn. Uh, that roster, obviously with uh, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Ben Simmons, uh, certainly loaded with talent. Over in Major League Baseball, we had a couple more teams hire some new managers. We talked about a few last week, or last episode rather, and the two other teams that hired their new managers were the Kansas City Royals and the Chicago White Sox, two American League Central teams. The Royals, they hired Matt Quattraro as their new manager. Now, Quattraro was a former eighth-round pick of the Tampa Bay Rays back in 1996, he played seven minor league seasons before beginning his coaching career. A longtime member of the Rays organization, most recently serving as their bench coach since 2018. All right, so Quattraro has never been a manager, so it's going to be interesting to see what he can do with that young roster that the Royals have, right? They got some pretty good young players. So uh, first-time manager there in Kansas City. And then the Chicago White Sox, uh, followed suit hiring a new manager. They hired Pedro Grifal. Now, Grifal is also a first-time manager. He's been the Royals' assistant coach since 2013, so he had served as the Royals' bench coach this past season. And oddly enough, uh, Pedro Grifal, he interviewed for the Kansas City manager's, uh, Kansas City Royals' manager job uh, since he had been the bench coach there, but they passed on him to hire Matt Quattraro, like we just talked about. So um, Griffal ends up over in Chicago with the White Sox. So again, pretty solid roster he inherits there in Chicago, but he's a first-time manager, so we'll see on that. Some free agent contract uh, signings. The New York Mets, they've agreed to a five-year, $102 million extension with closer Edwin Diaz. It includes a full opt out, uh, or excuse me, includes an opt out on the contract and a full no trade clause. All right, so he can't be traded, but he can opt out. That's over $20 million a year for the closer. Of course, Diaz is the best closer in baseball, had a spectacular year this year. Uh, play the trumpets. You know, if you've, you've heard his entrance music with the trumpets there, it's a, that'll give you goosebumps. But so Diaz is staying in New York. Uh, for another five years and $102 million. That makes him the highest-paid closer in all of baseball. The Chicago White Sox, they picked up shortstop Tim Anderson's option for his contract this year. He's going to make $12.5 million staying with the White Sox. And the New York Yankees, they picked up pitcher Luis Severino's option for this year, so they will pay him $15 million this year. Now, some other Major League Baseball news. I uh, just thought it was interesting uh, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred, he released a statement uh, last week saying that he's no longer optimistic that the Oakland A's are going to remain in the city of Oakland, right? There's been a lot of talk of them moving just because of their low attendance and how poor uh, it's been over the last several years, particularly this year. It's a crappy stadium uh, and just they don't draw a crowd. Uh, Commissioner Manfred actually said, quote, it just doesn't look like it's going to happen. And that was in a statement that he released. And he believes that the Oakland A's are going to move to Las Vegas, just like the Oakland Raiders and the NFL did. So keep an eye on that. And another team that's been the talk of a possible 
uh, location change is the Tampa Bay Rays. Commissioner Manfred in that same statement said that he believed that Tampa Bay would stay put in Tampa, but that they will build a new ballpark, right? Tropicana Field has had issues of its own, been well documented. So Commissioner Manfred basically thinks the Oakland A's are moving to Las Vegas, but thinks the Tampa Bay Rays will be staying in Tampa with a new stadium. So keep an eye on that. Certainly a lot more uh, to come on that. Now, the final piece of MLB news, uh, the Gold Glove Awards were handed out uh, this past week, and we'll just read through them. Starting off in the American League, Catcher Jose Trevino, New York Yankees. First baseman Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Toronto Blue Jays. Second base Andres Jimenez, Cleveland Guardians. Shortstop Jeremy Pena, Houston Astros. I mentioned that a little while ago. Third base Ramon Urias for the Baltimore Orioles. Left field and center field Stephen Kwan and Miles Straw, both from the Cleveland Guardians. Right field Kyle Tucker from the Houston Astros. The pitcher was Shane Bieber from the Cleveland Guardians, and the utility was DJ LeMahieu from the New York Yankees. You'll notice that there were four Cleveland Guardians there that received Gold Glove Awards. That was one of the things about Cleveland that helped uh, get them into the second round of the playoffs was that defense. And you could see uh, quite a few Gold Glove winners there, four from Cleveland there in the American League. Over in the National League, your Gold Glove winners – Catcher J.T. Realmuto from the Philadelphia Phillies. First baseman Christian Walker, Arizona Diamondbacks. Second base Brendan Rodgers, Colorado Rockies. Shortstop Dansby Swanson, Atlanta Braves. Third base Nolan Arenado, St. Louis Cardinals. Left field Ian Happ, Chicago Cubs. Center field Trent Grisham, San Diego Padres. Right field Mookie Betts, Los Angeles Dodgers. Pitcher Max Freed, Atlanta Braves. And utility was Brendan Donovan, St. Louis Cardinals. So you'll notice two St. Louis Cardinals, two Atlanta Braves, all right, on the National League side of things. Both of those were playoff teams. So it's no coincidence if you have uh, multiple Gold Glove Award winners that uh, you are probably going to be a playoff team. But uh, moving over to college football for a brief second, the Auburn Tigers have fired head coach Brian Harson after just two seasons. He had a record of 9-12. and 12. Now, this firing was kind of in the works for a while. It was reported to um, be happening relatively soon, so it seemed rather inevitable, and Auburn just couldn't wait until the end of the year. They had seen enough, so Brian Harson is out as the university of Auburn's head coach. That is an intriguing position, of course, being in the SEC West. Uh, Auburn's one of those teams that is is pretty good uh, every, you know, seven to ten years. They're very good, and uh, but they have the potential to make some noise in any given year. Uh, it's a great spot for recruiting, and, uh, you know, be on the lookout for who fills that spot. I've heard Deion Sanders possibly being a name uh, getting hired away from Jackson State. So uh, keep an eye on that, but that was just noteworthy. And then we'll close out the Around the Island segment with some news from the PGA Tour. Right, The PGA Tour announced the newest rendition of the match. Right, If you've seen the matches before, it's you know basically a, a 1v1 or 2v2 golf tournament, usually 
12 holes, 18 holes, somewhere in between. This is actually the seventh rendition of the match, and this is going to feature Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy as a team going against Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth. All right, this is Tiger Woods' third appearance on the match. Of course, he did the one-on-one with Phil Mickelson. He also played with, uh, I believe, Tom Brady at one point as well. So this is Woods' third appearance on the match. First for McIlroy, Thomas, and Spieth. Thomas and Spieth, of course, uh, U.S. Ryder Cup teammates, U.S. President's Cup teammates. They are best friends. They grew up playing together for the longest time. Uh, Woods is, you know, not really in any great golf condition. So my initial thought is that Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth will probably beat them. But uh, this match is going to take place on Saturday, December 10th at 6 p.m. Eastern. It is going to be a 12-hole match, and it will take place at the Pelican Golf Club in Bel Air, Florida. All right, so the matches are always fun. Uh, The most recent match that we saw, you had Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen going out there. So, um, you know, just it's usually like a celebrity type thing. Um, They do, I think they've done a couple per year, uh, but the newest one here, like I just mentioned, Rory and Tiger versus uh, Justin and Jordan. So, Uh, I will certainly be tuned into that. We'll kind of preview that maybe a little more as we get closer to December the 10th, but just mark that on your calendar if you're a golf fan and uh, uh, keep an eye on that as we get closer. But that is going to wrap up the 97th episode of Sports Island. It was a very busy episode with with a two-week break in between episodes, so uh, we'll try and get one out next week. But there is lots of good football going on, both college and the NFL a uh, pretty decent golf tournament in Houston this week. Uh, of course, we don't have baseball now, but we still have the NHL and the NBA, uh, certainly with some competitive events as well. So there's certainly going to be a lot of sports viewing again this weekend, and we will check back in uh, next week and see how everything unfolded. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.